Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, you know we just recorded that podcast with uh, Lee Drogan where we were talking about tech stocks and, and earnings, right? Yeah, I really like that one. And it's another one of one of our podcasts. And they're kind of rare for what we do where we actually talk about markets right now as we're going as are happening because we often sort of talk about esoteric stuff that doesn't directly involve the day-to-day. So I like that we got a chance to <laughs> actually talk about what's happening right now. Give the listeners something uh, useful. I really dispute the notion that we talk about esoteric stuff. But uh, as I say that, I realize that I'm a- about to start talking about esoteric stuff. Uh, well, that podcast about... Tracy, Tracy, yeah. do, you know the epi- do you know what our podcast is called? Odd Lots? But that's about bond trading. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but we all know. Okay, that episode about tech stocks got me thinking about, I guess, companies and company earnings throughout history. And I was sort of thinking on a very meta level, almost every company is a tech stock, right? Because winners throughout history are companies that have either invented new technology or used it to the best effect, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think Lee made that point as well, that really we're not seeing an emergence of tech stocks per se. What we're seeing is an incredible use of technology across a range of industries that allows essentially capital to have incredible leverage over labor. And what we call tech stocks like your Netflixes and your Facebooks are really the companies that are at the most extreme end of being able to get incredible amounts of output without uh, that much, uh, that many people working for them. Exactly. So after I started thinking about that, I started thinking about what a, you know, tech stock per se would look like, say, 100 or 200 or 300 years ago. Like, would it be a company that, I, I don't know, was inventing like new methods of producing railroad spikes or, you know, something like that? Would that be considered a technology company? And would investors react to it in a similar way that they would to a Facebook or an Amazon? Now, Luckily for us, there's someone out there who thinks a lot about this so that we don't have to. Um, And his name is Jamie Catherwood. (laughs) A lot of people might know him as finance history guy. Uh, Yeah, he's on Twitter, he's on Medium, and he's always producing these amazing articles about incredible episodes from financial history. I saw he tweeted something, I think it was just yesterday, about the IPO of the Guinness Beer Company and how people talked about that and how oversubscribed it was. And that was in the 1800s. (laughs) And so looking back at financial history, you really do, it sort of confirms, I think, what is one of our general themes that to some extent nothing ever changes. And so manias about what we call tech stocks today presumably have many echoes in the past as well. Exactly. And so we're going to talk about exactly those echoes. And I should just say that Jamie has also been a multiple listener request for an Odd Lots interview. So I'm glad we're finally making it happen. Uh, Jamie Catherwood, aka finance history guy, his real life job is an analyst over at (laughs) Arthur J. Gallagher and Company. Jamie, it's so good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess just to begin with, I'd I'd be really curious to get uh, some insight into how you became finance history guy and what exactly piqued your interest in, you know, 
going back to stories from the 1600s and even earlier to talk about finance and investing? Yeah, so I've always been a history nut. Um, I did history as my major at King's College London, and I became interested in finance. And after joining Twitter, I saw that a ton of people were putting out content related you know, just to investing in finance in general, but no one had kind of focused on history itself mm. and just financial history. So I figured I can't compete with the people who have been doing finance for decades or investing and, you know, much smarter than I am. But I can bring uh, the history aspect because that's what I kind of know. So it was just kind of finding my own niche. And I'm lucky that no one else was doing it because if they were, I'm sure uh, it wouldn't have worked out as well for me because there's some really good writers out there on Twitter. I like that. This this goes to my theory of life alpha, of the idea <laughs> of finding some profitable niche to exploit that other people aren't doing and sort of putting yourself out there and, uh, yeah, making hay in a way that others aren't very comparable to investing alpha. Um, do you find th- that it benefits you to study history in your day-to-day career as an analyst, as an observer of the market today? Certainly. I mean, it's – I even I get tired of hearing it, but, you know, people say the more uh, – things change, the more they stay the same. But it is true. It's, uh, I mean, as we'll talk about today, the kind of tech hype in the 1690s, it's a kind of good reminder to not get caught up with the latest fad and think that whatever everyone's talking about is going to be the next big thing. Because when you study history and you're looking at, I mean, I did one article on active investing in the Roman Empire, you can kind of see that these fads quickly go away. And so don't change what your overall strategy is just because there's some hot new stock or sector um, or technology because odds are that's just going to be something that someone's going to write about in 200 years, the next (laughs) finance history guy. On Medium, right? Or on Twitter. Um, So, Jamie, let's talk about what what a text. Whatever they're posting on. Or they're just going to wire it directly (laughs) into our brains, probably more likely. Download it, yeah. Uh, So, Jamie, let's talk about what a tech stock might have looked like in, say, the 1600s. I sort of alluded to it in the intro, but I I guess to some extent every company is sort of about technological innovation. But in the 1600s, technological innovation would look very different to what we think about today. Yeah, so the 1690s was kind of known as an IPO bubble in London on the London Stock Exchange. Some people call it a tech bubble, and some people, I mean, nerdy financial historians. And basically what spurred this kind of hype around tech stocks in that day was there's two factors. One was the Nine Years' War was going on, which restricted trade with other nations. And so any capital that investors wanted to deploy, they kind of had to turn inward and invest within Britain. So... When they were looking for new opportunities, they stumbled upon new joint stock companies that were starting to form more quickly than before. And there was one quote from a guy who started writing a sort of bi-weekly financial uh, markets review who said, uh, a great many stocks have arisen since this war with France for trade being obstructed at sea. Few that have money were willing it to lie idle, and a great many found that they could employ their money more easily in joint stock companies than in laying out the same in lands, houses, or commodities. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting that 
he was pointing out that it's easier to invest in these new tech stocks than other asset classes. But what really set off the hype was the success of A Treasure Hunt by Sir William Phipps. He was actually eventually the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is kind of interesting, and he oversaw the Salem Witch Trials. But he went out and convinced a duke in England, he could kind of think of as like a VC firm in the modern day, to invest in his voyage to go find some treasure. And the first time he failed, but then he came back, got more financing, went back out, and he had just heard rumors of some sunken treasure ship in the Caribbean. And he goes out, finds it, and he hauls up 32 tons of treasure, which I can't even begin to kind of wrap my head around, and brings it back. And the investors received a 10,000% return, <laughs> which is just unbelievable. Yeah. And as soon as that happened, that kind of just sparked a mania because dozens of new companies started forming to either provide the technology to retrieve treasure. So that was the kind of hype tech stock of the day was these diving companies that had either suits or other diving apparatuses. And you just have to look up the drawings of these because they're insane. There's one was like the Edmund Halley Bell and it was this weird contraption where they would lower you down into the water in like this bell, but trap air so that divers could stay down longer and search for treasure. Wow. And so all these companies formed basically promising investors. And one of the prospectuses for this company, one of these companies actually put in the prospectus, we promise 100% return to investors. <laughs> and their whole pitch was, you know, oh, look at that guy you know who made 10,000% on the Phipps treasure hunt this technology will do even better or just the same. And so investors just poured money into these stocks and it didn't, it didn't end up so well. Um, but there was, yeah, it was just crazy. There, from 1672 to 1689, there were five patents related to diving technology. And then in just two years, from 1691 to 1693, there were 17 patents filed and it was 20% of all patents filed in those two years. So... The kind of hype was I, clear. I already love this story so much. First of all, it would just have never occurred to me that in the 1600s they had any technology, no matter how rudimentary, that could get lower someone to the bottom of the sea for long enough to dig up treasure. I would have just assumed that in the 1600s there was no way to do this. So the fact that they invented various ways to do that, that already blows my mind. What were the returns like? So obviously, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going out on a limb much to imagine that most of these endeavors did not produce 10,000% returns and probably many of them didn't return anything like that. Is there a distribution of returns though that like that one can collate that sort of resemble, you know, like if you talk about you you compared the initial funding to kind of like a VC funding and VCs sort of they famously are willing to take losses on a lot of their investments to hit the occasional home run or a mega home run. Like if you have a portfolio that has Facebook and then 50 losers, you're totally fine. So is the, was there a sort of power law distribution like that to the companies that were able to successfully uh, dig up or find sunken treasure? So 
obviously we're kind of restricted by what has survived since 1690 <laughs> in terms of sources. Oh, there's not a good there's not a good uh, data set exactly on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would have thought. And uh, so, from what I've read, there was a 19th century historian who wrote a like really intricate um, detailing of all the joint stock companies of that day, and he wrote. I have a quote that none of the companies or expeditions, because in addition to just the diving technology companies, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of groups of actual treasure hunters who would set up like the Jamie Catherwood Exploration Company, and they were just dedicated to treasure hunting. But this 19th century historian said that none of these companies or expeditions were successful. Indeed, the only finds consisted of a few cannons at the bottom of the sea. So it doesn't sound like any of them really worked out. Um, <laughs> and so I wish it was more optimistic, but <laughs> it sounds like Phipps kind of got the job done and then no <laughs> one could replicate <laughs> his success. Another question that I have related to this. So you talked about the mania. You talked about the um, the surge in patents that were associated with the treasure hunting, diving technology. One of the things that we see in modern bubbles and even tech is you start with something like, okay, a few VCs invest in tech companies. And then a few years later, I'm getting ads on my iPhone uh, on Instagram to say, invest in tech startups for as little as $10 a month. And people find a way to democratize what had been this sort of very exclusive and uh, difficult way to invest. Talk to me about the mass participation and the degree to which this extended beyond the VCs and the Dukes to normal people who just wanted to put some money down in search of massive returns. Yeah, so it definitely was a wider spread uh, investment than just these VCs, as we're calling them, because these companies are formed as joint stock companies. And so the average investor was able to put their money into these companies. Obviously, that probably wasn't necessarily a benefit in hindsight once the kind of crash came. But yeah, it was definitely a widespread uh, sort of speculative mania. And there were an, there was an account later of the Treasury, the British Treasury, starting a lottery system because that's how they did a lot of their financing in the day because they wanted to kind of pool the money away from these speculative joint stocks into funds that would benefit the government. And there was an analysis done that showed that something like 87% of the money that and your average investor had been putting into these joint stock tech companies then went to these lotteries. And I thought that was interesting because it was kind of just proving that investors didn't have a specific, you know, dedication to these tech stocks. They were just going wherever offered the higher return. So as soon as these lotteries offered a better chance at that, they ditched the joint stock companies and kind of forgot about them. So, Jamie, the natural route for a lot of companies and tech companies in particular is that you're a startup and you get started out of someone's garage and then you get venture capital 
uh, funds and then you eventually do a listing and a big IPO and then you have public investors. Uh, you wrote a really interesting post, I think it was back in October, about how a lot of the companies um, that have been IPOing in the U.S. over the past year have basically never produced a profit. And a lot of those companies would be tech companies that investors are just sort of betting on on the off chance that they will get a big payoff eventually. What's the historic parallel to those sorts of IPOs that you were looking at? Yeah, so in the early 1900s, there was a rubber boom, if you can believe it. And essentially, these rubber plantations in Malaysia were they're the like the largest plantation. I believe it was in Malaysia. There was one in Brazil, so I might botch which one it was, but closed down, which meant that the supply of rubber was going down and prices were shooting up. And so as investors saw that, they did what they always do and kind of flocked to rubber as their new hot uh, hot fad. And a lot of companies in England, interestingly, not Malaysia, were setting up rubber plantations or at least claiming that they were in Malaysia to take advantage of this rubber boom. And investors just poured money into it. And companies were listing their shares on the market without even actually having a plantation yet, there was one company that put in their prospectus that they would basically offer the secrets of the company in exchange for a direct buyout of the whole company. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know, I wouldn't say that was reassuring if you were just investing that the founders were looking to get out so quickly. Um, But yeah, there was some guy who went to Malaysia and basically said there's just like these stubs of rubber, uh, tree, whatever the tree is that they're uh, planting on these plantations, and there was nothing even growing. And the prospectuses back at home in England were saying that they had you know, these really uh, high-yielding plantations and everything was going great, but in reality there was nothing even set up in Malaysia. So, yeah, it was a case of kind of just listing a prospectus to raise money or just, you know, line your pockets before doing any actual work. And no one was doing real due diligence, so well, worked I, for a while. I'm curious about that because you're talking about uh, the prospectuses of this rubber company. You mentioned the prospectuses of this uh the companies that the sunken treasure I mentioned in the intro, you tweeted about the prospectus and the initial uh, subscri- subscri- oversubscription of the Guinness IPO. Was there any when we think about prospectuses today and companies file S1 filings and they're all very regulated and there's very sort of strict patterns about you talk about this and then you lay out the balance sheet and then you lay out the income statements. Was there any sort of common approach to laying out a prospectus or was it in those days, basically, you just write whatever you want? I'm not an expert on this, but from what I've seen, it kind of, I mean, I can't imagine a government that was regulating prospectuses would let someone say, I'll give you the secrets to the company if you buy me out. Um, And I wouldn't say that looking at various prospectuses, there seemed to be a kind of common format or approach. So it certainly didn't seem to me that there is any regulation of it, but I could read something that proves proves me wrong. 
So what are some of your other favorite finance stories, especially anything related to sort of tech or mania, which seems to be what we're what we're discussing here? I got to say, you referenced the Guinness example. That's probably one of my favorite uh, examples of kind of a mania in history because it was just insane the sources describing what went down on the actual day of the quote IPO in 1886. I mean, the economist said something like it's a day that witnesses will never forget. And then uh, another newspaper at the time called The Spectator said that the scene that took place on Saturday outside of Barings Bank is enough to show that a speculative mania exists or something along those lines. And as you mentioned, I tweeted all these takes at the time by analysts or you know writers at The Economist and this other newspaper kind of taking their different views of the valuation of the company because a lot of investors were getting hyped up around Guinness's ramped up production and their, I guess, new technology to bring it back to tech that was allowing them to produce more at a lower cost. But then some analysts were saying that was really just because the materials had gotten cheaper. And so that was interesting. But in terms of mania, when the Guinness IPO actually took place, the Barings Bank basically came out and said that it would be open for 36 hours and investors who wanted to get in on the action had to come with their subscription form and deliver it to the bank, all signed and everything. And the bank only ended up being open for three hours because there was such a mad rush. (laughs) And they had to call in a special police brigade to police the area because investors were going crazy. They had to barricade the doors so they couldn't let anyone in. But people still wanted to get their shares in. But obviously, this was way before anything electronic. So they still had to deliver their subscription form. So seeing as there was police lining the perimeter and the doors were barricaded, investors started tying their subscription forms to rocks and literally throwing themselves at the opportunity oh by God. launching these rocks with their subscription forms like oh through God. the windows of Barings Bank in order to get their shares in. Uh, so that is, I don't know, to me that's one of the, like, the craziest stories because you just imagine some IPO today and investors <laughs> I love know, that so sitting much. in Manhattan somewhere just launching rocks through banks' windows you to try it, and buy shares. That kind of reminds me, Tracy, remember when we did the episode about the housing bubble in Florida like mm-hmm. 100 years ago? And we talked about the Binder Boys. Just oh, like yeah. who were out on the street in Florida who just had these binders full of properties for sale and these manias in essentially in the days before electronic trading, when things had to be done physically, when you had these manias and people actually had to gather in one place, in the case of Miami, it was just sort of gathering out on the street. There were actually like all kinds of traffic dra- traffic jams and other stuff like that because essentially everyone was out in the street trying to buy property. And so it very much reminds me of that, that sometimes these things get so intense that they start to like break down the physical infrastructure of the place where transactions are done. Yeah. 
Um, it, it makes you think a lot about like whether current manias are more difficult to spot because they don't happen in some physical capacity. Like you don't have a bunch of people standing outside yeah. the New York Stock Exchange hurling rocks in order to get their share subscriptions. <laughs> but I, but I, I did think of that that the the analogy would be remember in late 2017 when all the cryptocurrency exchanges couldn't handle the traffic load and start going down. Right. And they would have these crashes and people complain that their trades weren't going through. So even though it's digital, I do think that there's some interesting analogies where you just get such a rush. In that case, it was digital infrastructure that they were just buckling under the load. Yeah, so maybe when demand starts to overload the market infrastructure, that's a bad sign. Um, but we're we're speaking yeah. over Jamie, so I, f- I feel bad. Jamie, um, there's <laughs> one thing that you pointed out in your, your post about Guinness, which was that, you know, when this all was happening in the late 1800s, there were a bunch of commentators who were watching this from afar and going, oh, yeah, this is crazy, and it's definitely a speculative mania, and yet it still happened. Why was that? That was the craziest part to me is that we're, you know, I'm writing today, you know, all high and mighty, like, look at these idiots, you know, launching rocks through windows. (laughs) But people were saying the same thing at the time, which was kind of depressing, but also fascinating. Depressing in the sense that we're still having those same sorts of manias in different ways today. But also just that we kind of always assume that in the past when these manias happened, everyone was caught up in the mania. But there were people who sound just like I would write today saying that this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, there's no guarantee that this company is going to be a success and its valuation is ridiculous. Um, And so that just really... That particular Spectator article um, really stood out to me because the guy has some really good quotes about how the public will public will never listen to someone talking about fraud when returns are good, just as a soldier will never listen to, a thirsty soldier will never listen to someone talk about poisoned water. Something along hmm. those lines, basically. I like that it. you know, it falls on deaf ears. Because if there's returns, you're going to go for it. And if you're some parched soldier in the middle of a desert, you're going to drink the water no matter what someone tells you. Definitely, the idea of nobody wanting to hear about fraud in good times definitely falls in that category of the more things change, the more things stay the same. Jamie, before we go, uh, I do think there are probably a lot of listeners that are interested in economic history and probably people, or sorry, financial history, and people have read a lot of uh, books. But do you have any... uh, favorite resource material for what you learn that maybe people haven't heard about that they should check out? Um, the easiest way would be to plug my own <laughs> own account and follow me. But outside of that, um, archive.org is just an unreal hmm. resource that I've kind of recently stumbled upon. You can search like stock market and then do sort by date published and they have a like source material archived from literally like 1600s 1700s and it's just full pdfs that you can look at and go through so if that sounds interesting to you (laughs) then that would be my recommendation Um, but there's probably a lot of people who won't do that Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's safe to say 
Yeah, but I find that stuff fascinating. That's where I find a lot of these kind of interesting stories and quotes is just from reading the stuff written at the time. All right, but but the best way is for people to follow you on Twitter, right? Yeah, that would be my recommendation, but I'm biased. (laughs) All right, Jamie Catherwood, a.k.a. Finance History Guy, thank you so much for coming on, finally. I'm glad we could make it happen. Yeah, thank you so much. So, Joe, I found that conversation really, really great. And I, I just love the notion that, you know, we're sat here in the year 2019. I had to think about that for a second. It is 2019. And we're talking about technology, like social media and, you know, microchips and things like that. But in the 1600s, there were a bunch of people sitting around, you know, tables in London thinking about technology as a diving bell that would let them go underwater and search for sunken treasure. Yeah, the first thing I'm going to do after I get out of the studio here is go Google images of the diving <laughs> bell because I still find it almost unfathomable that in the 1600s they created ways for people to get to the bottom of the sea and be able to breathe. So that's – I wonder how many people died. You have to wonder in those endeavors. But anyway, because that's the first thing I'm curious about because I still almost find it impossible to believe. Mm. But there are, I mean, there's this sort of thing that seems to happen in all these instances of big technology breakthroughs, which is you get maybe, you know, one person who innovates. And I think Jamie has made this point on his on his Medium page. But you get one innovator, then you get a bunch of imitators, and then inevitably you get a bunch of fraudsters who just sort of mess up the whole space and make it a lot more dangerous for all investors. And there's sort of an oversupply, and it becomes very, very difficult for investors to pick out who is actually doing something substantive in the space. It really does seem to be the classic pattern of history in so many ways. I mean, again, not to just keep going back to the crypto bubble, but you couldn't have a more perfect sort of description of what happened there. Some people earlier, early on, tinkerers, computer scientists, uh, sort of radical anarchists. And then by the end, essentially like pure scammers and fraudsters. And just as the mania grew and the demand for supply grows up or accelerates, People will just put up any sort of paper or coins because they know there will be a thirst for it. Yeah, stalwart bucks. What was that? <laughs> um, sorry, we did an episode on that, didn't I we? Know, yeah, I we know. did. That was no. We were among we were among the early crowd. Yes, okay. That was just a, you know we were not in it for the money. <laughs> we we were not scammers and fraudsters. You were in it for the technology. Okay. On a serious note, though, I I thought you no no no. The good news is <laughs> the good news is uh, stalwart bucks never they no they never acquired any mo- monetary value really. So the good news is no one really lost anything. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, I wanted to pay you a compliment and say that I thought your observation about um, market manias and how you know again going back to crypto, but when we saw a lot of the blockchains and the exchanges being sort of overwhelmed by demand, that might have been a good indication of basically a speculative mania taking place. And I think I think you're on to something because I think if the existing infrastructure can't handle demand for a particular security, then it's usually a good sign that something is out of balance in the market. 
Yeah, I mean, you see this pattern pattern repeat in uh, 99-2000. A lot of the online brokerages that people were using to trade tech stocks had regular outages. You can go back and look at those. Going back to the Florida bubble, just even the trains to get into Florida started getting too crowded because so many people were traveling down there. <laughs> so whether it's digital, in person, or people throwing rocks into a window because they can't get into the bank, I do think that um, it's one of those telltale signs that a mania is afoot. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should definitely follow our guest today on Twitter because we keep referencing how great his uh, Twitter account is and his Medium account, Jamie Catherwood. He's JFC underscore three underscore. Check him out on Twitter. And you should definitely follow our producer, Topher Forges. He's at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. 